Welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, I'd just like to let you guys know that I have a one-on-one career coaching program. So if you are feeling unfulfilled or unhappy at your corporate job and looking to find a job that's more fulfilling, then send me a message on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or find me via LinkedIn. I'd love to see how I can help. All right, on to today's episode. Today, I'm super excited to have Renee Wu join us here. Renee is currently the owner of a pole dance studio and national champion of many pole dancing competitions. But before all of this, Renee grew up in Hong Kong and studied physics at Caltech. She was even working on a PhD program at Stanford and had plans to eventually become a professor. So how does she go from scientist slash engineer to winning national championships at pole dancing and eventually even owning her own pole dancing studio? I'll hand over to Renee now to share her fascinating story. Well, thanks, Renee, for coming on to the podcast today. Super excited to have you here. So I thought I would just start off at the very beginning, kind of talking about your life story. We actually both went to high school together in Hong Kong. Uh, You decided to go to Caltech to study physics in university. How did that decision come about? So ever since I was really little... I had always been really excited by math and science. And so it had made a lot of sense to me that I would choose a school that kind of specialized in those types of fields, which is how I ended up deciding to apply to Caltech. And I remember Uh, actually in high school that you were definitely very interested in math and science, but you were also really interested in gymnastics and dancing. So was that also something that you were super passionate about in college? So I had always seen those things as like long-term hobbies of mine. I was one of those little kids who begged their parents to let them start ballet and gymnastics and eventually they caved on both. (laughs) And so I had done both since I was six, seven, eight years old. And I did all of those all throughout high school. Now, the big downside of Caltech was there isn't really much of a program for either of those. And so I had gotten as involved as possible within the Caltech dance community. I ended up actually running it for a little bit. But honestly, that took a backseat to academics because I was just too busy. I had no time for anything outside of school. Oh, yeah, I was convinced that academia is the way I'm going. I will leave with a physics degree. I will go pick up another physics degree. And then I will go find a job in academia to do more physics. And dance will just remain a fun, relaxing thing that I do in my spare time. At the end of college, I was still planning on becoming a professor one day which kind of by default means I need a PhD. (laughs) So that was kind of a no-brainer of, of course, I will apply to a whole bunch of grad schools and hope that one of them takes me. And and what was it about academia that attracted you to it? Why did you think you wanted to be a professor? I liked the idea of research and discovering new things and spending my time trying to solve problems. I've always been a problem solver. So that process is something that I really enjoy. And the research aspect of science kind of combined two things that I really liked. 
the problem solving, and then also the general topic. So I entered into the Applied Physics PhD program at Stanford, and I had started working in a combination Applied Physics Neuroscience lab. Um, that was studying memory storage in mice, basically. But idea is hopefully in the future, it could be expanded and provide more detail into perhaps how humans store memories and how our brain works. Kind of had veered a little away from strict physics, but that is sort of what happens when you enter a PhD. In your first year of grad school, they recommend that you do short rotations with different labs to try out different environments, try out different research topics, kind of see what like sparks your interest. And so I had actually started in a more traditional physics lab, studying like superconductors and materials-based physical properties. But then I found the other lab and I was like, oh, this is actually way more in line with what my interests really are. And so I really appreciate that they encourage that kind of trial and error aspects because had we not done that I probably never would have figured out that hey this neuroscience stuff is actually really fascinating. I think that's super interesting because I think a lot of times when people choose a career or choose like a topic to study it's usually like I go in knowing that this is what I'm going to do rather than like mm -hmm. exploratory as well. So I think that's pretty cool. At the time when you were doing your PhD program were you also dancing on the side or how did you balance so these two? When I first moved to the Stanford area, one of the first things I did was Google dance studios near me because having come out of Caltech where I had minimal time for hobbies, I wanted to try to see if I could carve out a little bit more time because I had realized it helps a lot to keep me sane. <laughs> and that's kind of how I ended up stumbling into pole dancing. I've never tried this before, but why not? So one random Thursday evening after I got done at the lab, I went to my first class and instantly hooked. And pretty soon that became where all my free time went. <laughs> like if I had a spare moment, I would go to the studio, take a class and yeah, never look back from there. <laughs> That's honestly amazing. So you found something that you truly loved and you were like spending tons of time there. At the same time, you were still doing your PhD program. I would love to know where was kind of that turning point for you? Uh, I know that you actually eventually left your PhD program. So maybe talk us through that decision a little bit. It was probably about a year and a half into the PhD program where I realized that while I still enjoyed the research aspects of it, I was also starting to realize that this super hardcore dedicated to research life that needs to happen for you to finish a PhD was not really something that I wanted to give the next five years of my life to. The big tipping point in that decision kind of came from some conversations with my fellow grad students and other people in the lab where I realized I did not have that same passion and drive that a lot of them had that I was starting to realize is kind of necessary to get through the PhD without just completely losing your mind. I'm sure that if I had decided to, I could have struggled through the rest of the PhD, but I would have been very, very miserable, most likely. It's never like an easy ride to finish a PhD, but the people who make it through and at the end are very, very glad they did it is because they still have that bit of spark, that little passion 
that makes them really excited to do the work that they do, where they are willing to, you know, get up every day, go into lab, do all the tedium of research, and then go through all the pain of writing paper after paper, and then, you know, trying to finish the thesis and so on and so forth. And it was just seeing everybody around me and their attitude towards their work and their research and contrasting that with my own thoughts that made me really realize, like, I'm not nearly as into this as everyone else around me is. I'm still super into science. I just realized that I am not interested enough to have that be my entire life. And that's probably a sign that I should walk away now rather than later. So once you had that realization, what were your thoughts with regards to next steps? <laughs> it's funny because I had no plan. I was just like, I don't want to put myself through the PhD anymore, but I don't really know what I'm doing next. And as opposed to waiting until I have a plan to quit, I'm just going to quit now and figure it out later. Was that actually a hard decision for you? Or you just knew innately, this is just not what I'm going to do and I'll figure it out. It was hard in the beginning because I had spent basically my entire childhood just with the assumption that one day I would have a PhD, I would be a professor. I'm pretty sure if somebody had asked fifth grade me, I would have told you that. Having no idea what that actually meant, but it was just somehow an expectation that had lodged into my brain. And so letting go of that was a little weird at first. But once I figured out that this really is not for me, it wasn't hard to commit to that decision, even though I had no plan, because I, I just knew I am going to be dreadfully unhappy if I try to force myself down that path. When you told your parents that you were quitting your PhD program, what was their reaction? I had mentally prepared myself for them to be super against this idea and to be highly concerned. And so I had prepped with my sister, actually, all the things that I should say to convince them, like, I'm not crazy. I am making a sensible decision. This is the right decision. And so I'd like work this all up. And on the day that I had decided that I was going to tell them, they're like, okay, good for you. And I was like, whoa, wait a second, what just happened? That went over so much easier than I thought, <laughs> um, which is fantastic. I was very grateful that they were so understanding and so supportive, but it was surprising, that's for sure. <laughs> it turns out that they had started to notice and pick up on some signs that I was not that happy with the PhD life. And so when I told them that the reason I wanted to quit was because I was unhappy and I figured that I would be happier doing basically anything else, they were all for it because they were like, yeah, we would much rather you be happy in your life than any of these other concerns. My parents occasionally still kind of mentioned like, you know, you could go back and do a PhD still. And so I think part of them, you know, is still hoping that I'll go back and earn the fancy degree. But to them, what is most important is that my sister and I live happy lives and they will support us in whatever choice we make. I wanted to ask this dream that you had as a young child of being a professor. Do you think that that was influenced by your parents? Honestly, I have no idea. But somehow... And I asked my sister once, too. For the longest time, both of us just walked around with this expectation that, duh, of course we'll have a PhD. We're not really sure why. I mean, our parents did always hold fairly high expectations of us. And so it seemed kind of matter of fact that, of course, we would continue to hold these high expectations. But nobody ever outright said, oh, yeah, you should be a professor one day. 
Okay. Got it. I guess sometimes parents also like put expectations onto their children, but it sounds like it was actually something internally driven. So you decided to quit the PhD program. Your parents were actually pretty supportive of it, which is, is great. Walk us through that decision a little bit. Right around that time, my husband and I got married and I applied for a green card. And so in that interim time of waiting for the green card to be approved, it bought me like six months to kind of figure out what I wanted to try to do next. I had decided to try to find a job that kept me in the Bay Area to transition into the world of tech because that is what this area is known for. And given my background, that seemed like the easiest transition for me happens across a job opening as a hardware engineer on Microsoft's HoloLens project and ended up spending about a year or so working. Got it. And I guess at this point in time, you were still dancing on the side? Yeah. So throughout this whole time, waiting for the green card, I was getting more and more into full, especially because I had six months with nothing to do, right? And so I started spending a lot of time at the studio. And that was around the time when a couple of the instructors on the studio owner had floated the idea of would I be interested in teaching at the studio. And when that first came up, I kind of just dismissed the idea because one, I just started and I'm still enjoying being a student. And two, I was on the student visa didn't have a green card yet and so I can't legally teach yet anyways but when the green card came in that's when I started the Microsoft job and teaching at the studio right around the same time how did you even go from just a student of the studio into an instructor what happens sometimes is if there's a student that one of the other instructors or the studio owner sees as having pretty solid understanding of how whole works. They look for a general baseline level of knowledge and skill level. And then after that, there's a little bit of teacher training. Teaching is not just about like how good you are at doing the thing. There's a lot more that goes into teaching than that. And so I shadowed some of the current instructors in some of their classes and I would teach little snippets in their class to kind of practice teaching before I was given like a full class of my own. I know you also did a lot of pole dancing competition. Was that during this period of time? That was during this period of time. That year at Microsoft was when I was starting to get like super into competing. At some point, people just started telling me, hey, you seem to be pretty good at this. You should think about competing. And I've always had a little bit of a competitive streak. And so I was like, sure, why not? This was that period of time where me and one of my best friends, because both of us were working full-time jobs at that point, we would work our jobs, standard like nine to six hours kind of, go to the studio, we teach from six to eight thirty, nine o'clock, and then we would train. And so those were the days where we would train from probably like 9 p.m. till about midnight or 1 a.m. and then go home. Because those were the only hours we were free. So we made it work. Oh my God. That is dedication <laughs> to be able to work such long hours and then put in the time to practice yourself for the competitions. Okay. You're doing a ton of pole dancing. You're winning a lot of these competitions, which is amazing. What made you decide to quit Microsoft? Was it because you wanted to spend more time on pole or was it independent of pole dancing? And that was independent of pole. I just realized that the tech world environment was not for me. I seem to dislike this much more than everyone else around me. That's probably a sign. Because, <laughs> you know, everyone complains about their job, right? But they would all still get excited about whatever they were working on. Going to work felt like such a chore. 
and there was nothing about it that I was really into. Everything was just like tolerable, but that was it. And I don't want to continue working like this. Like surely there's something better that I can find. <laughs> so then you were like, okay, I'm just going to quit. Were you thinking like, I'll be a pole dance instructor full time? Or were you like, maybe I'll try another engineering type job at another tech company? I quit with no plan once again. <laughs> um, I was like, I'll quit and I'll figure it out later. Maybe I'll find another engineering job. Maybe I will find something completely different. I even floated the idea of like, maybe I do go back to grad school. Who knows? And then that's where a friend of mine that I had made through the pole industry, she ran a pole dance competition company that put on a whole series of competitions across the U.S. every year. She just sent me a text one day. Are you still looking for a job? If you are, do you want to work for me? I discussed it with my husband because it would involve a significant pay cut from a tech job. Can we get by if I take like a 50% pay cut? <laughs> and can we still make it work? And we decided that, you know what? Yes, we can. And so I might as well try this and see what happens. Wow. I, I wouldn't say they were all luck because it seemed like you were slowly building up these relationships. And then it just so happened that timing wise, you were super lucky with them. So I think that, yeah. that's super cool. I've always been a big proponent of the idea that a lot of times life comes down to luck. Things just happen to fall into the right place at the right time. And I definitely know that had things happened in like a slightly different order, I probably would be in a very different place right now. And so the trajectory of how I got here was definitely less plan-based and more luck. Which is pretty awesome. I actually wanted to take a step back and ask, I, I know a lot of people are really nervous with taking time off, having that gap in their resume. What would your advice be for them? I think for me, one of the big things that made me okay with that was having enough confidence in my abilities. Yes, there might be a slight gap in my resume, but if I am the right fit for this job, that will still be true regardless of the gap in my resume. And knowing that I would be able to explain that gap. I think that's another big one. If you have somebody with a giant gap in the resume and they tell you they truly did nothing in that time versus somebody who has a gap but has a story to go along with it, whether they were taking that time to learn a new skill. It doesn't even have to necessarily be relevant to the job. I want to know that you did something and you weren't just sitting around kind of waiting for something to happen to you. And so for me, what did I do with that time? I was working on my teaching skills. And everything can be phrased into some kind of skill, right? So like part of teaching, I am learning how to better manage people and how to manage multiple sets of expectations at the same time and plan things. So I think knowing that and having that trust that I made the right choice made it easier to accept the fact that there is going to be this like weird, awkward gap in my resume where I didn't really have a job. <laughs> I think that's a really good way of, of thinking about this and, and approaching this. What I'm picking up is like one, believing that you do at the end of the day, have these innate skills that make you hireable. So actually a few months off or even a year or two off isn't going to dramatically devalue your abilities. And also having a clear story about like what you are doing during that period of time, having something else that you can bring to the table could actually help you stand out. But shifting back a little bit, when you quit your job, did you tell your parents as well? <laughs> How did they feel about that? 
This is the exact same thing. I prepped this whole giant conversation because I was also just super busy in this period of time. I just sent my parents a text in like our family chat. Just so you guys know, I put in my like two weeks notice at Microsoft today when we were next on the phone, like a couple days later. I just kind of told them this job, I'm not enjoying it and it's not for me and i feel like it's time for me to try to find something else to do and once again they're like well if you're happy so actually a lot of this seems like it was something that you were more worried about than your parents were actually oh yeah because i was so convinced that you know standard asian parent reaction <laughs> and so i was very ready for them to be very concerned but apparently they keep surprising me Got it, got it. Okay, so back to the a friend who asked you to join her pole dancing competition company. Tell us a bit about what you were doing there. When I first started, I was her first employee. And so we were still figuring out, what do I do? So those first few months was a lot of trial and error on both of our parts. I tried a little bit of standard customer service. I did some logistics planning and just working through miscellaneous random projects that needed to get done. What we landed on was I started doing a lot more logistics stuff because when you run a competition, with the way we describe it to people kind of outside bowl industry is we're putting on multiple weddings every year you need a venue we have like 200 or so people coming through the events you have to deal with competitors you have to deal with judges you have to deal with volunteers and spectators and so there's just like a lot of things that need to happen in order for you to successfully hold an event and so when i started with her i think we had about 10 12 15 events a year and then I worked with her for a couple years by the time that I left the company we were at I think almost 40 events a year and we branched out internationally we started running events in other countries it was a lot a lot and so along the way both of us had to learn a whole bunch of new skills I wanted to go back to the the parents bit again because when you were telling your parents that you were a pole dance instructor on the side, were they pretty supportive or were they like pole dancing? Like what? They were actually totally okay with me doing pole. It's obvious that pole dancing for a lot of people carries a certain stigma and an association with strip clubs, which fair because pole originated from strip clubs. So it is very understandable that that association is there. And unfortunately, it does mean that when some people tell their circle of family or friends that they do pole, they are met with disapproval. I've been lucky in that I have experienced none of that. So my parents were totally okay with it. They immediately wanted to see my video, see what I was doing. And then I've never hidden it from my coworkers either. I think that's great that you've had such a strong supportive network around you during your journey in pole dancing as well. For people who haven't seen you pole dance, I want you to describe a little bit about your style because from what I've seen, it's honestly so elegant and graceful and actually very different from what people would normally think. Do you think that that kind of helped when they started to see the actual dance, they realized, oh, actually, there's a very different way of approaching pole dancing. I think for some people, that probably did make a difference. Because like you were saying, there's a lot of people who unfairly devalue more sensual, sexy movements and think better of movement that looks more like ballet. For me, since you were asking about my own dance style, growing up, I did ballet, I did contemporary. And so that comes through in what I do now. And adjectives that are frequently used to describe my dance are 
graceful, light, floaty, smooth. And that is what I like. My personal goal for my dancing is to always make things look as if they are easy and effortless. That being said, however, I also absolutely love central pole. Like sexy choreography and sexy style classes are some of my favorite classes to teach. And one of my competition titles was for sexy style pole. And so that is also an aspect of pole dance that I am super into. But even amongst that, I tend to retain a lot of that light, airy movement quality because that is just how my body likes to move. And that is what I have trained my body to want to move in. Got it. Got it. I think that that's a very fair point. People maybe unfairly judge this more sensual style. At what point did you feel like there was a turning point for you where you were like, okay, I am going to fully pursue pole dancing as my career? I'm not going to go back to find another tech job or go back into physics. So when I started working for the pole dancing competition, I started at like 10 hours a week. And at one point, there's enough work that I could do this 40 hours a week. And so when they hit that point, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, I'm not looking for another full-time job. This is now truly my full-time job. And so that was that first shift in mindset of like, okay, I'm now putting enough hours into this job that, yeah, requires zero of my old physics or tech knowledge. <laughs> it's just this whole new skill set that I've now picked up in event planning. That was the shift number one. And then shift number two came when the opportunity showed up for me to buy the studio that I had been teaching and training at. That second shift of like, oh, I, I'm doing this. Pole is now becoming my life. And that was like an interesting shift to make because I had spent so long telling myself, I want to keep this a hobby because I want this to stay fun. I want to have no pressure attached to this, no expectations. And this is meant to be like my stress relief. I was still able to kind of justify that working for the competition company because I was like, well, I'm running events. My pole skill has actually got nothing to do with this. It just happens to be in the same industry. But then the studio thing came up and I was like, oh, am I, am I really going to go all in and owning a business in this industry? Now I'm truly going to make pole my career. Is that something I want to do? <laughs> and so I thought it over. Spoiler, I said yes. <laughs> and here I am now, <laughs> three years later, <laughs> I have a studio. <laughs> Pole is my life now. Was that a difficult decision? How did you come to terms with the fact that you were going to start treating pole dancing as not a hobby, but a full-time career? And I think the other piece of this question is, did you feel sad that you were going to give up physics or science? No, didn't really feel sad. I didn't really feel that I was going to be missing out on the science tech side, partially because that I'd kind of made peace with. I now get to truly keep just the parts I like. I like reading about interesting discoveries, interesting things, but somebody else can go do the work to find them. That part was easy, but it was hard for me to make that decision. That this thing that I love as a hobby is now about to have like, real stakes attached. And I was very concerned that by taking over the studio, I would eventually lose my love for the hobby because I took something that was fun and I turned it into work. And as much as you know, people like to say that if you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work, I have found that that is not true, at least not for me. And no matter how much you love something, there is a big, big difference between loving something and knowing that it is casual and just for fun versus yes i still love what i do but there are expectations right like i want my business to succeed there are things that i have to consider beyond just do i like this yes or no and so committing to making that shift took me a bit 
because do I want to risk losing my love for that? And is it worth it? Part one was realizing, yes, I'm committing to buying a studio, but also if I change my mind, I can sell the studio, close it down. I can walk away. That helped a lot. <laughs> Just knowing I had an out. Also, I was very attached to the studio community. It's a wonderful group of people that we have here. And so when I was told that we're looking to sell the studio and if we can't find somebody we'd like to buy it, we're going to close it. I was like, oh, I don't want it to go away. Because <laughs> like, selfishly, like, I want the community to say, while there is that risk that I might lose some of my love for my own hobby, to me what felt more important and something I wanted was that I would be gaining the ability to be able to build a space for people, to create and provide the environment for other people to fall in love with these activities the way I did. And when I framed it as such, I realized that that idea actually was really appealing to me. And that made me actively want to buy the studio. Yeah, I think one thing I really picked up throughout this conversation was that you felt like things weren't actually permanent. If you quit your PhD program, yeah. you could also always go back to it. If you quit your engineering job, you could always eventually go back to it. If you buy the pole dancing studio and it doesn't work out, you could always sell it. I think that was one thing that I thought was really great way of framing things, you know, because a lot of times like we make a decision thinking it's so final and like, oh my God, everything's just going to change. When in reality, it's actually quite fluid. What's the worst that could come? You just go back to what you were doing previously. Like, why not just try it and see where it goes? Yeah, I realized that while life doesn't have a true undo button, the nice thing is life also doesn't just lock you in one path. Frequently, you have options and they might not be immediately obvious. And sometimes the option is you just got to walk away and start over but that is possible <laughs> and so for me it was very freeing to make that realization of nothing has to be permanent i get to choose whether i make something permanent and so that is entirely up to me and i only need to choose to make it permanent if i want to i think that's a very empowering way of framing these decisions so you bought this pole dancing studio i'm just curious to know at that point in time from a financial perspective what were you thinking as much as i wanted to keep the community going i was not ready to commit to a black hole of money getting sucked away <laughs> that's not sustainable i don't want that for myself and so yeah i run through the numbers a little bit kind of see do i feel like there is a viable business plan in this that will allow the studio to operate in a way that i feel confident taking it on and it turned out that the answer was yes like i came up with a plan that i felt was reasonable and i set expectations for my business that i felt pretty confident that i'd be able to hit of course, you never really know until it happens. And so I knew there was still a bit of a chance that I would be losing some money taking this on if it ended up not going very well. But because of the projections that I had run, that seems a low enough chance that I felt that it was like a safe financial bet. Got it. But then fast forward a little bit, COVID oh, kind of hit, <laughs> which was unforeseen. And I'm sure that had a significant impact on your, your pole dancing studio as well. So kind of talk us through a bit of that. How did you deal with all of that? COVID definitely threw a wrench in a lot of the plans that I had for the studio. I had made the choice myself to shut down the studio before the local governments mandated that we had to. Just knowing what I knew about the pandemic and how it was likely to go. And this is where 
growing up in Hong Kong, having the history of SARS definitely played a big role in that because I found myself being much more concerned, much more worried than a lot of my peers were. I know I don't have to, but I'm shutting down because I feel like that is the right thing to do. And sure enough, a couple days later, everybody else had to shut down. That was in March of 2020. And I did not reopen my studio again until May of 2021. I tried online classes for about a month or so, around June. A lot of people have had a lot of success with online classes, but for me, I made the decision that it just wasn't worth it and it wasn't the right fit for my studio and my business. That was a short-lived experiment and for the rest of that time, completely closed. So I had spent a period of time preparing to reopen because I knew that it wouldn't be as simple as we get to just instantly go back to what we were doing before. I made the decision, I'm not playing that game of we are open one month and close the next. I am not going to open until I feel reasonably confident that I can stay open without having to shut. It made it easier for me, at least mentally, to handle the stress because I was like, I will just delay dealing with that because I can't do anything about this right now. The pandemic is where it is and I am not in control of that. And so instead of stressing over something that I don't really have control over, I'm just going to put it away until we hit a point where I feel like I can take on the level of stress needed to get this place back open again. <laughs> that being said, I am lucky in the sense that my first two years, I made enough money that I was able to confidently weather out this closure. Because if I had been in a situation where I didn't have the cash flow and I had to worry about paying rent, I would have made different decisions. I would have you know, done everything I could to scrape up every last little bit of revenue. But because I knew that I had enough of a buffer, I decided that my sanity was going to be more important. And I was lucky to be able to make that decision because I know in this industry, a lot of people did not have that luxury. That's amazing. Honestly, that cushioning is, I'm sure, <laughs> a lifesaver in years or oh, moments yeah. like this. When you took over the business from the previous uh, owners, did you change the business model? I ask this because I wonder in the two years prior to COVID when you had really great years, did you change anything? The business was already doing pretty well before I took over. And that was part of my decision-making in being willing to take it over. I am taking over a business that is already pretty healthy. I think what worked in my favor too was that because it had been the same business for so long small changes felt very refreshing and very new to people and i was able to capture that feeling by making small changes the core business model didn't change all that much but a couple of cosmetic changes got it what are you seeing as like the next step for your business one of my personal goals for the business is definitely to build back that financial buffer that I have now blown through over a year of being closed. And I anticipate that being a little harder because chances are for the near future, I will have to slightly change the way I run classes. Classes will be at a smaller size to accommodate social distancing requirements. I've put in a whole bunch of new safety measures in place for classes that I just never needed before. And over the past year, I have also noticed that certain trends in the industry have changed, like people's preferences have changed of what style of dance they like to pursue, what is popular these days. So when I relaunched the class schedule, I tried to take some of those things into account as well to reflect the changing taste. For instance, I added back to pole or back to aerial classes for people who have taken a long break 
but a true intro class is not appropriate for them because they do still have a fairly high baseline of knowledge. And so we've put in quite a few classes to bridge that gap. Chances are those are not going to stay on the schedule forever, but they are definitely important in this kind of in-between time. And I had other plans for the studio that I had originally wanted to put in 2020 that obviously will now get to until I build back that financial buffer. But eventually there are certain renovations I want to do. There are things I just want to add to expand the offerings at the studio. And so I've been hiring new staff as well to continue building up what I am able to offer. What else can I do with this place to create that community that I want and create that feel that I want that I haven't already done. So shifting gears to talk a little bit about mentors, do you feel like you had a mentor throughout this process? I know for the studio owning side of it, I didn't really have a mentor for that. I definitely do feel like having a mentor is a good thing. I think part of my reluctance or hesitation in doing so was I have a hard time asking for help. It is that one of the things that I am trying to work on improving for myself because I tend to assume that I have to do everything on my own and I just have to struggle through it. And so that mindset definitely has kind of stopped me from being able to just casually reach out to people and being like, hey, I would love to get your feedback on something. And so definitely do as I say, go find yourself a mentor and do not do as I do and struggle through it on my own. However, I have to give a lot of credit to that friend of mine who ran the singing competition because she was a very solid mentor for just running a business in general. Like I have learned so much from her, like how to deal with managing multiple people, how to make hard decisions and have difficult conversations with people. And so even though the business is different, I do have to give her a lot of credit for everything that I picked up getting to work really closely with her for multiple years. Okay. And just wanted to ask because I think this is one of the questions that keeps a lot of people in their corporate job, which is like that steady paycheck, right? I think we briefly talked about this throughout this whole conversation, but how did you kind of balance these two things, financial security and following your passion? So for me, having that period of time where my husband and I sat down and we took a hard look at our finances and really figured out what is the minimum that we need and being really honest with ourselves that we don't want to live like super struggled lives. We need to account for the fact that we want money for luxury. And so being really honest with ourselves about that to know, okay, no matter what the plan is, we need to be able to hit this amount of income. I'm not idealistic enough to just be like, chase after your dream, the money will come. I wish I had that mindset sometimes. It probably would make certain things a lot easier, but I don't. And so for me, it I do need that plan of, even though it's not set in stone, do I feel like it is a reasonable expectation that I can make the amount of money I want to make? And that's how I approached it with the studio too. I knew there was a risk that I take over the business and everything goes wrong, but there is a good chance that I will be able to hit the revenue that I want from the business to fill the needs that I want for the business and also be able to pay myself the salary that I want to be able to pay myself. For me, what I realized was like, okay, so... I'm not making nearly as much as I would have had I stayed in the tech bubble. But I'm okay with that because I realize I don't actually need that much money. There is what I need. And if I can make more than that, that's just like icing on the cake. It was just being really honest about what do I want? Can I hit what I want doing the job that I am imagining? And knowing me, if I had realized that like going down this pole route would not get me to the income level that I wanted, I wouldn't have done it. 
I think that's exactly what it is. Like you nailed it on the head. Being very clear with exactly how much is needed and being firm on that so that you realize, actually, I don't need to stay in a job I hate making 2x of what I'm making. But then the other piece is also, okay, I don't want to blindly follow my dreams and make like no money from it. I still have to live and there's a certain lifestyle I want to sustain. I think it's, again, that idea of being honest with yourself of which is more important to you. Is that dream of you get full and complete freedom over your life to chase exactly the dream you want to chase? Or is some measure of stability important? There's no right or wrong answer. But I think a lot of times people aren't necessarily honest with themselves when they ask themselves that question. Because it's hard. It is hard. Because most of us probably fall somewhere in between, right? Like, most of us probably aren't all one or all the other. And we live somewhere in between. And so we have to find that balance of like, okay, how much freedom am I willing to give up for a little bit of extra security? Or how much security am I willing to give up for a little bit of extra freedom? The last question for you is really just any piece of advice you have for people who are thinking about pursuing something a bit different and leaving behind a more traditional career path, or just something that you wish you knew before you kind of embarked on this journey. I think the biggest piece of advice would be some of the things we've already talked about of one, really being honest with yourself with what you want. And then two, also knowing nothing's permanent. You're allowed to change your mind. Just because you start down one path doesn't mean you have to keep going down it. And so if you change your mind later, life is long. You got time. And that applies basically at any age, really. (laughs) You always have time to start over and build the life that you want. But definitely along the way, keep checking in with yourself and like ask yourself, is this what I want? During the pandemic, I had to stop and check in myself. Like, do I want to keep the studio going right now? Or do I want to just like call it quits? Because I don't know when I'm going to open again. And for me, the answer that I ended up at was like, no, because I am really looking forward to when I can have this community again. And I love the community that I've built. And I don't want to give that up yet. I have no expectation that I am going to own the studio for the rest of my life. But in the meantime, this is what I want. And so I will continue down this path for as long as it is the path that I still want to be on. And so I think if I had to like put it into like one piece of advice is be honest with what you are at any given moment and just stay true to that. And if you are able to be really honest with yourself and not be scared of the answers you might find, I think it will be much easier for you to make the correct decision for yourself, whatever it might be. I think what I'm hearing is that, you know, just being clear on what your values are and don't be afraid to reassess over time. And I think another important thing that like sometimes comes up and I know probably comes up more often in like a lot of more traditional Asian cultures is too, it's your life. And you are allowed to change your mind and There might be people who disapprove of that, but they're not living your life. You are. (laughs) You get to make the decisions that you need to make for yourself. And at the end of the day, you're the one who has to live with the life that you've set up. And so if you change your mind, that's fine. As we grow older, our wants change, our desires change, our values change. And there's nothing wrong with that. And if 
somebody else doesn't understand that change, that's okay too. I think that's so important because especially in Asia, a lot of times we're told to think or take into consideration all the other people's opinions around yeah. us. <laughs> and sometimes it's at the expense of listening to that voice inside of you, right? Like yeah. that little voice inside of you gets drowned out by all the other voices near you and, and around you. Well, you can take their opinions. You don't have to act on them, <laughs> right? You get to choose what you make permanent. You get to choose what input you keep. You get to choose what suggestions you listen to. But at the end of the day, it is always up to you. And I think remembering that will take people a long way, like giving yourself permission to make those choices. And with that, I think that's honestly a great place for us to kind of close off <laughs> the conversation today. I think that's a great way for us to leave and wrap up. So thank you, Renee. That's been really, yeah. really great chatting with you. And there you have it, my conversation with Renee. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, we often think that the decisions we make are final and life-changing, but it actually isn't as permanent as we might think. For example, while it might seem scary to leave behind a PhD program, Renee knew that if she wanted to, she could always go back to pursue it again. Similarly, when she bought over the pole dancing studio, she knew that if it didn't work out, she could always sell the studio. Reality is fluid, and a lot of the times, what's stopping us from taking a risk is really ourselves and our own limiting beliefs. Two, it's okay to change your mind. People change, and as we grow older, our wants, desires, and values change as well. It's totally normal. For example, as Renee got older, she realized that she was actually more interested in pursuing dance as a full-time career rather than physics. It's not to say that her love for physics evaporated overnight, but her interests, values, and priorities changed. Three, a lot of the times we're taught to take into consideration what others think about us. However, this can often come at the expense of listening to what we want. Know that while we can take into consideration other people's opinions, we don't always need to act on them. Try to at least give equal weight to what your inner voice is telling you as well. All right, and that's a wrap for season two of Control-Alt-Career. Thanks for following along for two seasons. I really appreciate you guys tuning in. I'll be taking a bit of a hiatus to work on some exciting new content for season three, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more career-inspired content. And if you guys are looking for a career coach, feel free to reach out to me as well. I'd love to see how we can work together. All right, I'll see you guys back here for season three in a couple of months. Hit subscribe now so you don't miss out when season three comes out. Music